Greetings and welcome to This Is Revolution. My name is Jean Bagelon, in for Jason Miles. And today we have an exciting episode where we will be doing a deep dive into the Crusades and its effect on both Muslim and Christian civilization. Uh, Jason may not be here, but I am joined by MT. MT, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, it's uh, midday. The, the sun is in the in the sky and it's cold here in Missouri. Oh. Um, yeah, it's pretty cold. How's New York? New York is cloudy, but relatively uh, balmy. Relatively balmy. See, we're being very British today discussing the weather. <laughs> but don't worry, TIR fans. You're not stuck here with just me and MT, the C team. And of course, <laughs> since we're talking about the Crusades and we're talking about Islam, we are joined by TIR's leading Muslim, Pascal Robert. Pascal, how are you doing? Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to Gene. Peace and greetings to MT. And I say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. See, there we go. We have the we have Pascal dropping his Arabic knowledge on everybody. That's uh, that doesn't sound the, like Nation of Islam stuff to me. No, he's not no. Nation of Islam. Nation no. of Islam are heretics. No, they they, they are heretics. <laughs> They're definitely beyond the pale in terms of some of their belief systems. Um, but you know, I'm not going not, to cast judgment or aspersions on the ideological fictional factionalization within the Muslim oh he movement. said it there you see that freudian slip faction that fictional. was that was for careful factionalization look i'm a very i'm you know i'm a very orthodox down the line straight up shafi muslim uh secu secularized shafi sunni muslim waging a constant war against the shias in the person person of my wife your wife and is persian man what are you talking about i know she's the <laughs> she's she's from mashhad which is uh you know which is the where the tomb of the imam is of course a very important site in shia islam and uh, she refused to allow me to call the children yazid omar bajalan we had to pick a we had to pick a compromise name uh, you know, th th those were those were forbidden. But enough jibber jabber. Um, today we will be discussing the Crusades, which I think gets referenced a lot in political discourse. I mean, if you especially go back to the 90s with Samuel Huntingdon's whole clash of civilization and the War of Tower, we have this, you know, we have the Crusades playing an important role in the formation of Christian nationalism and Christian ideology. And of course, the Crusades play, being a touchstone of um, uh, Islamic uh, political thought in the modern era, where it has become uh, woven into what we might think of as a narrative of anti-imperialism in the Middle East. But we wanted to actually focus on the Crusades as a historical event and talk about actually what was the impact of the Crusades. What were the Crusades? Are they, you know, I think a lot of people who know about the Crusades uh, 
have a kind of pop culture understanding of it. There's There was a lot of literature in the late 19th century, um, which kind of romanticized the Crusades as this kind of, uh, you know, romanticized figures like Salahuddin Ayyubi and Richard the Lionheart, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, often I think our understanding of the historical events of the Crusades gets mixed up with a whole bunch of narratives that were created far, far uh, later than the Crusades actually existed. And who better to discuss this with is friend of show Adnan Hussein, a professor at Queen's University in Canada and a specialist on Islamic history and the Crusades. Adnan, welcome. Wonderful to be with you. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah to Brother Pascal, to uh, Brother Jean, and to everybody uh, in the audience. It's great to be here. Wa alaikum salam So, Adnan, thank you for joining us. And I wanted to kind of start off our discussion today with a kind of big picture question so that people can have a kind of historical context for what we're going to be talking about today. Can you very briefly outline what the Crusades were precisely in terms of their origin and their scope in the history of both Europe and the Middle East? I know it's a big question, but you know, what would be the main points you would want to kind of get across to people as a foundation for talking about the Crusades? Well, sure. Um, of course, as you point out, there's maybe a lot of popular knowledge about the Crusades through media, art, literature. And um, you started out by pointing out that there are a lot of contemporary stakes in the Crusades, contemporary uh, references to the past and use and abuse of the Crusades in contemporary political, cultural, civilizational dialogue. Um, but of course, this all goes back to the medieval period, and the Crusades were a series of military expeditions and wars that were called initially, and and uh, you know were really organized, um, at least initially, and certainly authorized by popes uh, in the Latin West to recover uh, the Holy Land and Jerusalem, and launched in 1095 uh, by Pope Urban II at a very famous council at the Council of Clermont. He preached the crusade in response to overtures and appeals for aid from the Eastern Roman Christian Empire, the Byzantine Empire. The emperor had sought um, assistance uh, from the Latin West um, to, you know, fight against the incursions of the Oghuz or Seljuk Turks in particular uh, into Anatolia and into conquest of um, uh, lands and territories uh, of the Byzantine Empire, um, which of course followed earlier conquests that had taken place with the emergence and rise of Islam as a world religion and as a political system, uh, you could say, in the early Arab Islamic con conquests of the 8th and 9th century. So the Byzantine Empire had already lost uh, a lot of territories like Egypt, what is today Egypt, Syria, 
uh, Lebanon, uh, Palestine, Jordan, and so forth. And then there was an, a new wave in the uh, late 11th century of uh, Turkic uh, incursions, migrations, invasions that had captured much of the Anatolian Peninsula. And so he appealed to the Latin West for aid and Pope Urban II in the various versions of his speech uh, announced the need to support and aid Eastern Christian brethren and also specifically um, to remind in a devotional penitential manner uh, his audience that Jerusalem was the territory specifically of Christ and that it was suffering under pagan kind of sovereignty and pollution and needed to be freed. And so it turned a tradition in some ways of penitential pilgrimage where people, you know, for forgiveness of their sins would go on a long religiously based journey to a shrine and visit it. They could go to Rome, they could, you know, go to a local shrine, but increasingly in the 11th century, the journey to Jerusalem had become a really popular form of devotional and penitential pilgrimage. And so he turned this kind of act of pilgrimage into an authorization for a kind of military itinerarium, a military journey to recapture Jerusalem. The first crusade, um, despite not a lot of uh, planning or knowledge, uh, ended up being a, a success despite all of the odds and established there in the early 11th century four crusader principalities established by these Latin Franks um, called the Kingdom of Jerusalem and, and County of Antioch, County of Edessa, and the County of Tripoli, uh, that then um, persisted uh, in this area of the Levant, basically sort of southern, um, what is today southern Turkey, down to parts of Jordan and um, to the borders, you might say, of modern Egypt. This kind of territory narrowly on the coast was now ruled by a settler Frankish class uh, um, over a diverse and mixed population um, and defended itself against responses um, that started rather late, actually. I mean, initially, the first uh, uh, crusade managed to conquer these areas during a period when Muslim kind of societies were divided between a Shi'i Fatimid uh, uh, empire situated in North Africa with its capital in Egypt and um, the Seljuk Turks, who I mentioned had uh, come and started to dominate much of the central lands of the Islamic world from parts of Central Asia, Persia, Iran, modern day Iran, into Iraq and Syria. And so the zone of Palestine along the coast was an arena of contestation between the Sunni, you know, Seljuk, Turkic powers who recognized the authority of the caliph uh, in uh, Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliph versus the Fatimid rival Caliphs who were Ismaili Shi'is and controlled most of North Africa or much of North Africa. And so in this kind of situation of division and, and competition between, you know, Muslim powers, the Crusaders managed to uh, seize this opportunity uh, and, and created their own uh, uh, polity. Um, and it took quite some time for a real response, but over the course of um, what is sometimes called the 
neo-jihad, that is a kind of counter-crusade, um, Muslim powers, particularly Salah al-Din uh, Ayyubi, managed to recapture Jerusalem in, in 1187 that ushered in continuous needs for further crusading ventures that last until the end of the last principality situated in Acre, modern-day Akka, uh, in 1291. And so the Crusades um, are numbered typically in historiography from that first crusade preached in 1095 that captures Jerusalem in 1099 uh, over the course of this basically two centuries of warfare, religiously uh, validated warfare called forth by the popes to um, defeat the Muslim powers capture Jerusalem and extend the domain of Christendom. And the concept of Christendom, I would argue, really acquires genuine political, uh, ideological and territorial sorts of uh, definition and force as a consequence of the Crusades. And so that's something we can talk a little bit more about the implications of that, but in a nutshell, that's kind of the scope of the Crusades, uh, mobilizing in eight major crusading efforts, but you could say that there were hundreds of military expeditions on a smaller scale to reinforce, to go on a pilgrimage, but go with your military men and see what you could do in aid of the Holy Land. So you have continuous military mobilization during these, this period sometimes massive mobilizations, but a kind of at least continuous interest and preoccupation with uh, fighting the infidel in the Holy Land. And the similar kinds of ideas were extended in parallel to what we call the Reconquista in Spain, where Spanish feudal, Christian feudal lords were also marshalling and mobilizing on the basis of religious ideology over time, not initially, Initially, you know, it was just different lords fight with each other for territory, but at a certain point in the post-crusade uh, to the Holy Land, you start having ideological warfare religiously justified against the Saracens in Spain as well. So just, just to pick up on a point you made there, so in terms of the Crusades and shaping uh, political thought in Europe, the Crusades provided a, a a touchstone that would later would later be applied to other conflicts in Europe. So, for example, you mentioned the Reconquista in Spain. Obviously, there was a long history of conflict between the various forces on the Iberian Peninsula, interaction as well as uh, conflict. But you're, you're saying that the Crusades in the Holy Land, the ideological superstructure that emerges from that is then transplanted into the Iberian Peninsula, hardening the frontiers between Muslim and Christian. Did the Crusades in the Holy Land also affect, for example, the Crusades in in Eastern Europe, for example, against the pagans in Prussia and Lithuania? Uh, are, Are those all, those other Crusades, are they all outgrowths of of this kind of crusade in the Holy Land? Yes, great question and a really important point. So 
structurally speaking, for something to be a crusade, and historians always argue about what is the real definition of the crusade, and is it only crusading, you know, to Jerusalem that really counts? Uh, how should one understand the whole crusading movement and its basis? And so some take a kind of narrow uh, kind of view of what makes a crusade is that it's authorized or called for by the Pope and that the Pope issues a plenary indulgence that is essentially forgiveness, says that the act of crusading will be penitent, you know, you know, penance performed uh, for any sins. And so you would have remission of sins after confession. This wipes out your penance, right, that you have to do. And so this was attractive as a way of encouraging and sanctifying the act of crusading, of crusading military engagement. So the popes, however, apply this set of conditions increasingly to other possible conflicts. So there is the Albigensian crusade against mm -hmm. the heretics in southern France uh, that, uh, you know, takes place um, early 13th uh, century. There is the Baltic Crusades that involve confronting pagans in, you know, the North Sea, Prussia, and, you know, further east into modern-day Lithuania, Estonia, and so forth. And there are special military orders that come to constitute themselves uh, that are a kind of form of the religious life like, um, you know, joining a monastic order, except that you are doing so as a warrior. Normally, to join a monastery, you're giving up violence, you're taking a vow, uh, you know, um, of celibacy, stability, and, and so on. There's parts of the monastic vow, and you are usually, uh, in this period, um, you were perhaps drawn from that noble class, and you were thus giving up kind of military engagement in order to wage a kind of, you know, spiritual warfare through prayer on behalf of Christian society. Uh, what we see emerging in the Crusades is the spiritual and religious dimensions of it are really quite attractive, but of course there is a need for these warriors to uh, continue to be warriors and fight in a holy war. And so there's created a kind of military order that are religious orders themselves. So the Knights Templar, who are quite famous, the Knights Hospitallers, and the Teutonic Knights. And those are the ones who are specifically, principally involved in the Baltic Crusades. Mm -hmm. But the popes also used it sometimes, and this is sometimes who crusade historians say this is when it really, you know, the crusading movement went off the rails and it was debased and so on, is when you know, very powerful and important popes like Innocent III and his successors in the early 13th century used the crusader indulgence and called for wars against political enemies in the papal states. So within mm. Italy, right? So we see that um, the predominant way of thinking about a crusade is to Jerusalem. A secondary kind of level is to think of it as the warfare, sanctified warfare against the Saracen, as the Muslims were known. And then another way of thinking about it is sanctified holy war that is authorized by the Pope and has the crusader indulgence and at the behest of the Pope could be directed towards Christian heretics, you know, internally within Christendom and even political enemies. I mean, we call them the political crusades, but of course it did lead to them being declared you know, like enemies of Christ and so on. So there was a 
sanctification of the pursuit of temporal power by the popes using the crusader indulgence. And so it's a very important question and historians are not always, you know, they don't always accept what is a, a crusade and what's not in terms of the crusading movement. I actually wanted to touch a bit on, upon that because oftentimes we hear about the crusades as this kind of quasi-spiritual slash geopolitical uh, class of civilizations between Christendom and Europe and, you know, the Saracen Muslim world without understanding that the Muslims had had their footprint in in Europe going back to, you know, you know, the 700s, 800s, and, and, and that they were not aliens to these territories and they had greatly contributed to intellectual, spiritual, and cultural development in these lands, yet oftentimes they're deemed as being these savage barbarians. Can you talk somewhat as to why it is that the actual contribution and the role of the Muslims in these territories is oftentimes denied and they are generally portrayed as being mere savage infidels who are just conquering these alien territories. Well, yes, and that they don't belong in Europe. I mean, this is almost a presumption um, of modern political discourse and, and uh, historical thinking. I mean, you're right, so right to point out that Muslims have been in what we consider the territory of Europe. And we should also remember that the contemporary territory of Europe isn't exactly the same as Christendom during the medieval period, right? Because you, of course, you've got the Crusader states, you've got, um, you know, uh, um, you know, incursions taking place elsewhere, you have the Latin uh, you know, conquest of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade that never actually really makes it to the Holy Land, but ends up absorbing the, you know, Eastern Roman uh, uh, Empire, the Byzantine Empire for almost 60 years uh, and so on. So uh, Christendom isn't quite the same as Europe, but likewise, Europe wasn't just uh Christians, right? I mean, there were pagans and they had to be Christianized. And there are whole periods uh, for 800 years where there are Muslims, you know, in societies um, uh, on what we think of as Europe in Spain, for example. And of course, there are Jews um, throughout uh, this period, um, important communities in um you know, northern France, in the Rhineland, and of course, on uh, in the coastal regions, and so on. So um, this idea that Muslims are new, say, immigrants to Europe and have no connection to Europe um, is something of um, a simplification of the longer history of movement and migration in the Mediterranean world. Um, in which, for example, you did have uh, a large Muslim presence before and after uh, conquest uh, persisting for hundreds of years under Latin Catholic rule in Spain until the forcible conversion of that population who then became often are known as through this derogatory term of the Morisco, the Moors become the Moriscos and are now new Christians, um, but ultimately are regarded as unassimilable and um, expelled in 1609 to 1614. However, um, much of what we think of as the uh, 12th century Renaissance, maybe a, you know, uh, 
highlight news flash for uh, most uh, listeners. There wasn't just the great renaissance in Italy that we're all familiar with, uh, you know, with, um, oh, Michelangelo and and so on. Um, We talk about a period of cultural efflorescence that starts to take place in Europe in the 12th century, which happens to coincide with the high point of changes that are taking place in society and the crusading movement uh, that also involved the translation of uh, Arabic uh, texts. Uh, it's often characterized as Greek uh, think Greek thinkers, the translation of and recovery of Greek thinkers uh, into Latin for Europe. But the way in which that happened was because these traditions of Greek rationality and science. Um, were preserved, translated into Arabic, and developed and even criticized in this kind of intellectual culture in the Islamic world that involved Muslims, Christians, and Jews, all part of a kind of common, what I would call, Islamicate high culture, um, a philosophy of trends, certain trends and methods of theology, and of course, in what we think of as the sciences, and the pseudosciences, because we have to admit that astrology and astronomy basically went hand in hand in this period, as did chemistry and alchemy uh, and so on. And that this tradition then was recognized by Latin scholars and thinkers as essentially, you know, the uh, most advanced form of uh, current knowledge about math, uh, medicine, astronomy, and so on. And so uh, when there was uh, periods of this contact here in Spain, uh, there was a translation movement, um, mostly situated, people think, in, in Toledo, which was captured by Alfonso VI in 1086, just a decade essentially before the cru- first crusade was announced, um, that ended up attracting scholars from all over Latin Christian lands to go study because they had come across this archive of materials and uh, a Jewish and Christian population that knew Arabic and served as the mediators for the transmission and translation of it into uh, Romance, i.e. Proto-Spanish, a kind of, you know, vernacular form of Latin that was the common colloquial uh, language of people in Spain. And so the sources of what we might call intellectual, dynamic intellectual uh, advances that take place in the 12th century are very much tied up with increasing contact with uh, and even coexistence at, you know, over the course of time with uh, Muslims and Arabs and the cultures and intellectual traditions of the East. So this story of crusade and crusading is of course a major one of conflict between different polities and religious communities. But at the same time, there are all kinds of cross-cultural interrelationships taking place. Sometimes we think of the Crusades as facilitating them, but uh, also because uh, there is large communities in coexistence in multi-religious societies in places like Spain, in places like Sicily, which you know listeners should know, Um, had a large Arab population for several hundred years before the Normans begin conquering it and southern Italy in the, you know, middle 11th century and create a multi-religious society that involves Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians, Latin Christians, and an Arab, 
you know, uh, this Muslim uh, community and that, you know, the Norman kings of Sicily ruled over this kind of multi-religious society and absorbed the culture. If you look at the Palatino, you know, the very famous, you know, chapel uh, in, in Palermo, um, you know, it, it looks like it's a Byzantine and Islamic kind of, you know, architectural and decorative space because it represents this cosmopolitan culture where, um, you know, there's a lot of cross-cultural contact and interplay at the level of art, music, uh, that's being interchanged, uh, food, you know, so, so much of what we think of as the culture of Spain or Southern France, uh, Sicily, uh, places like this are really a product of a long period of dynamic interaction among different communities. Um, so the idea of the clash of civilizations that Huntington, you know, draws upon or, or initiates that you might say is kind of inspired by some sense that there has been since the early modern period, since the medieval period, a kind of civilizational competition and conflict um, is of course only part of the story. Uh, and I, would, I think one thing we really have to highlight here is the modern perception that uh, Greek and Roman pagan civilization were are the exclusive um, property of Christendom and Western civilization mm -hmm. is extremely misleading. The Islamic world has a very strong, has also, as much as Europe, has been influenced by the history of those pagan civilizations. Uh, Platonic thinking, you know, uh, Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, and iconography. Uh, even the religious themes that exist within uh, Islam were profoundly influenced by the pre-existing civilizations that the Arabs came into contact with when they expanded from the Arabian Peninsula. And the Arabs themselves were profoundly influenced by um, uh, Greek and Roman uh, civilization even before uh, the rise of uh, Islam. You had Christianization uh, on the fringes of the Arabian desert, progressing quite deep into Arab society. So I think, you know, the, this attempt often to disentangle Islamic civilization from Christendom and then in its secularized version, European civilization is based on a kind of false dichotomy and a pruning of the historical reality in which you can say, you know, in many ways, uh, in the immediate, uh, you know, Islamic civilization is as much an inheritor of the achievements of Greek and Roman civilization as the uh, as Christendom, which also was extremely uh, influenced by it. Now, MT has a question. I do have a question. So one of the things, well, not to encourage that dichotomy that you spoke of, but one of the things I found very interesting after learning about the Crusades from, I guess, the Christian perspective, for the most part, uh, having the story turned around and learning about it from the Arab perspective. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting from the Arab perspective, from what I've, I've learned, is um, the, the Arabs felt that the Crusades uh, from the incoming Christians were successful to the extent that the Arabs were not united. So can you speak to that a little bit? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, and we haven't talked so much about, you know, the impact or response of, you know, the Muslim world, uh, the Arab world to uh, the Crusades. And it is definitely that theme of the lack of unity that, you know, is also appropriatable in modern times to contemporary political Arab nationalist discourses as well. Um, but before I get to that, I just wanted a quick thing about, in a, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Gene, about um the early history is actually also absorbing and coming from the same sources uh, in various ways uh, that, uh, um, you know, are important and significant and thought of as uh, antecedents for, you know, European culture and civilization. Because, for example, there is this one of these polemical um, letters of a, an important um, belletrist uh um, and theologian, but I would say a literary figure, principally uh, Al-Jahiz, um, who was in Basra in Iraq, um, and wrote a really interesting kind of critique of Christianity and, you know, against the Christians, but more as a kind of political and cultural community than just as a sort of theological exercise of polemic. And one of the things he says is that he condemns the current Byzantines um, for being um, kind of so fundamentalist, um, you know, in their orientation and so literalist that they've developed this, you know, iconoclasm and hostility towards uh, the ancient wisdom of the Greek philosophers and um, that it is in fact actually the Muslim world that are the true inheritors of this culture of logic and reason and that we have inherited because we actually care about these texts and and so on and study them and you've lost it because of your religious like excess religious bigotry and extremism and we are you know this kind of inheritors the translatio studii you know we are carrying on this tradition so there was a real sense of you know in in terms of rivalry and so on of like who are the real uh, inheritors of this greek rationalist tradition for example um and so I would just say that that's a very important uh, kind of point to realize and recognize that Islam doesn't just emerge fully formed out of history, you know, with the revelation of the Quran, which itself took, you know, uh, you know quite some time, 20, you know, three years uh, to be revealed uh, as well. It was revealed in parts and the interpretation of it and the establishment of Islam as a religion that we could recognize today moves from being, you know, the religious um, uh practice of a conquering, you know, military elite, military and political elite after the conquest ruling over vast communities, the vast majority of whom are Christians of various kinds and of Jews and, and that it's a diverse community. Muslims are a small religious minority. Um, and so it's impossible to imagine that they were not informed in what becomes, you know, the majoritarian culture over the course of time through religious conversion and so on, that there isn't going to be huge influences really uh, from the uh, existing population that becomes Muslim. They, this label, it's not that nothing changes, but that there are so many continuities with the religious and political culture of 
the, the Near East in late antiquity that just, you know, over time becomes characterized as Muslim and whatever emerges from that process is a synthesis of what Arabs from the Jazeera brought, you know, from previous centuries, but it is really a product of that historical interchange. So that's a really important point. But to this question of like uh, how it's regarded during the time, one of the important and really initial um, preachers of the new jihad, right, of the new kind of that we need to have a religious res military response to restore Jerusalem to Muslim rule, and we have to uh, liberate Muslim lands from these recent, um, you know, infidel uh, settlers uh, who have come, uh, was, um, you know, very uh, interested, his name was Asulami, and he, he wrote this kind of book, and he was a popular preacher, and he sort of journeyed to Damascus, and, you know, let out the cry, and the, almost nobody listened to him for, you know, several decades before there was a marshalling of some um, you know, response, particularly around the time of the Second Crusade that happens in the 1140s. And instead of, um, you know, uh, capturing uh, the county of Edessa that um, uh, Zengi, uh, Turkic uh, tribal lord from Mosul, happened to, you know, conquer and extend his territory, which the collapse of the county of Edessa led to panic and emergency uh, um, in Europe and the calling of the Second Crusade, a theme I'd like to come back to at some point, um, uh, that then there was this kind of response that starts to become more organized and starts to draw from this tradition of striving in the path of God and trying to sanctify, uh, you know, a kind of counter-crusading military culture against the crusaders. One of the things that he said, this Asulami, who was a real antecedent and progenitor of what will become this neo-jihad counter-crusade discourse, um, was that this happened because of the disunity of the Muslims in this territory, because they're dealing with the Shia Sunni kind of split. And of course, he was a sort of really hardcore Sunni. So he thought of this as dealing with these you know, um, uh, you know, religiously invalidated Rafidis, those who had rejected the consensus of the community, um, and that that danger had to be dealt with. And in fact, actually, you can see that one of the first and important successes of Salahuddin in reunifying kind of the Muslim world, at least of the Eastern Mediterranean, was first, before he even engages in any serious counter-crusading activity, the neo-jihad also involved fighting against these heretical, you know, groups, the Fatimid Caliphate, and he conquers Egypt. And that's really the platform uh, that are, allows him to then concentrate upon, you know, these crusader principalities and defeating the uh, armies of the Latin crusader kingdom, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem in uh, 1187 at the Battle of Hattin. And from there, a couple months later to recapture Jerusalem. Um, so, this Sulami, you know, was preaching that really you have to have unity and we've been so divided and fragmented and that we need to bring the Muslims, you know, together in order to provide a, uh, you know, kind of platform um, 
to fight against these new in invaders. So that was a kind of very important theme. And I would say it was very politically useful also for those who wanted to consolidate rule from among the many different emirs and contending and competing with one another that Salah al-Din you know, managed to use the um, idea of uh, unifying in order to defeat the Crusaders, to consolidate power over his rivals, um, because he wasn't actually necessarily considered the most legitimate leader until he um, conquered Egypt and then managed uh, to use that as a base to overthrow, essentially, uh, the Zengid dynasty that had um, basically conquered Syria um, and, um, and was controlling Iraq and Syria. So he was a bit of an interloper. And I would say that um, the counter-crusade, the neo-jihad, um, provided a kind of legitimization uh, for his own consolidation of what becomes the Ayyubid Empire and lasts for several generations and ruled over Syria and Egypt. And uh, with regards to Saladin, he, moved, he, he was quite astute in his maneuvers. I mean, he had arrived in Egypt in the, in the service of an interventionary army under the control of his uncle. Yeah. But even when he seized effective political power, he only he, he at least on paper remained loyal to Nur al-Din, the leader of the Zenganids, until his death, after which he claimed to be the true heir to the spirit of what the Zenganids had been, been doing. So he, 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 he moved quite astutely within that ideological milieu. He didn't simply seize power in Egypt, but rather sought to win consensus uh, for his rule uh, by overthrowing his old Turkic masters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the, exactly correct um, that he was cautious and pragmatic, you might say. And in fact, actually, there were forces on him, especially once he became, you know, the recognized uh, sultan, you know, of, of the of the region. Um, that wanted to push him into a uh, more precipitous uh, encounter with the Crusaders, you know? So just as you have um, in the Latin West, those who are more, um, I, you might say, devotionally and ideologically committed to crusading and hostility to the Saracen infidel, um, pushing for uh, and propagandizing on behalf of crusade. Likewise, you had some of these forces, and I alluded to one kind of important preacher and scholar um, who was influential. Uh, you have some forces that um, are also uh, concerned to, uh, without delay, we have to free Jerusalem. And it took Salah al-Din quite a long time before he felt he was ready uh, to actually besiege first Acre, uh, very importantly, because that was probably the most important port city. As we know, if you ever look on a map, Jerusalem is in sort of the hill off the coast, and it's really part of a different network and isn't actually, you might say, a very kind of important city in trade terms or, you know, population size and production, you know, really uh, you know, Aleppo and Damascus were bigger and more important. And then the coastal cities like Acre, Akka, uh, where there was trade, on, you know, and commerce that could take place in connecting, you know, overland trade to, you know, maritime networks within the Mediterranean. And Acre was, of course, the entrepot for the Latin 
especially particularly Italian city-states that each had a kind of quarter or part of the city where they had their own facilities, institutions, warehouses, and so on, and where they could kind of sort of govern themselves. They had concessions, you know, from um, the you know, from the rulers that they didn't have to pay certain taxes and things because they were f facilitating this kind of trade and trade network that was bringing wealth to a place like Acre. So that was the first place that actually Salahuddin really targeted, which was capturing Acre. So when you look at, and, and that was the first place that the Third Crusade went to, was mm. first let's kind of recapture Acre. And there was frustration on the other side as well that Richard, after the successful capture of, of uh, Acre in the Third Crusade, Philip, uh, his rival from France, decides, hey, well, job done. I'm going to go back home now to France. Richard stays on, but he frustrates many of the crusaders who have come, you know, for, uh, you know, the, the purpose of, of capturing Jerusalem that he never lays siege to Jerusalem, but instead goes down the coast, you know, uh, uh, looks like he's interested, perhaps, in uh, maybe invading Egypt, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of other material and geostrategic and commercial interests that are at play with the foundation of the Latin Crusader states. I happen to think that one of the things they were interested in doing, and I haven't seen much scholarship on this, but because I'm not a really trade and commerce historian, uh, you know, I'm cautious about saying this, but this is kind of the direction I'd like to look at is that you start to see that there is around in the, in the later 12th century, some of these Latin crusader rulers in the, in, you know, in the kingdom of Jerusalem look like they're interested in getting into the Red Sea. And my thinking is, is that they want to connect into the Indian Ocean trade system independently. And capturing Egypt would really anchor and, uh, you know, allow the Levant, Levantine, you know, uh, uh, territories to be fortified uh, with the wealth, you know, of Egypt. And it would also give them access into the Indian Ocean trading networks. And that seems to be a geostrategic goal Richard is spending a lot of time, it looks like, trying to get to Egypt, and his men, many of his men, are frustrated that he's not laying siege to uh, Jerusalem, and instead he actually enters in a period of negotiations, particularly with Salahuddin's brother, al-Malik al-Adil, such that they supposedly, according to the sources, developed a real close friendship, right? And Salahuddin did things like you know, sent, he heard Richard was ill, they have their spies, you know, they get intelligence, he hears that Richard is ill, and he sends him, you know, some sherbet, you know, uh, ices, you know, and potions, and says, I can send you my, you know, personal physician, you know, mm -hmm. to take care of you, and you start to have this kind of through long contact over several years, where there's not always a lot of fighting going on, but they're encamped of, you know, diplomacy, negotiations, gift, you know, trading among these kind of martial elite, they developed, you know, this kind of rapport, such that some of the more uh, serious and committed crusaders in, in Richard's camp were grumbling and unhappy and thought that he was becoming, you might say, soft on the Saracens, you know, and it became a bit of a problem. So Richard, in order to satisfy his men and quiet down any of these voices of dissent and, 
and, and so on, uh, went and raided a couple of villages, slaughtered the inhabitants, brought back the heads and, you know, presented these to the Crusader army showing that, hey, I can kill plenty of Saracens, you know, so I'm, so, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a I, good I, Crusader. I think this is an important point to uh, uh, focus on as well. When we're talking about these armies, both the Crusaders and the, the Muslim armies, we're not talking about armies drawn by popular mobilization. The vast majority of the population, uh, whether they're Muslims or Christians, are not conscripted into the military. These are elite groups that uh, see themselves not only as distinct from their opponents uh, on the other side of the religious divide, but also as distinct from the peasantry and the urban classes below them. Uh, MT mentioned uh, learning the Crusades from the Arab perspective. But when we look at the martial elite that were fighting mm -hmm. in the Crusades, uh, I mean, under, under Saladin, they, they were coalitions of uh, uh, slave soldiers as well as mm -hmm. Kurdish and Turkish tribes, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. opposed, uh, uh, and often the conflicts within the uh, Muslim armies polarized along ethnic or tribal lines as different factions within that martial elite had different interests and different uh, things. Saladin came exactly. to power, came to power because he was able to leverage solidarity amongst the Kurdish tribes within the uh, interventionary army to take command after his uncle passed away. And you know, in fact, some of the Turkic tribes left uh, uh, because he'd been appointed uh, le uh, leader. So and. and Similarly, on the Crusader side, you know, this is a martial elite that sees itself as distinct, not only from the Muslims, but also the indigenous Christians living in the Levant at, at, at the time as well. So there's, often, yeah. there's a strong class-based notion that exists. And these military elites of both armies are often quite culturally distinct from the populations of the regions that they're that they are fighting over. And, you know, this is quite common. You look at the Fatimid military corps, you know, it was made up of Sudanese, Armenian archers, mm -hmm. all kinds of mm -hmm. the, uh, cosmopolitan groups that were distinct from the mass of the Egyptian population. So, you know, this is yeah. a very, this is a, you know, trying to hammer this into a Muslim Christian kind of conflict mm. misses the important class aspect. And of course, in the pre-modern world, class is often framed through notions of ethnic solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And so often, I mean, you know, interestingly, the end of the Ayyubid dynasty uh, around 1250, which actually happens during, you know, the Seventh Crusade, you know, interestingly enough, um, gives rise to the Turkic and Circassian, you know, because as you were pointing out, I mean, even the Mamluks, as they were known, because they were slave soldiers, uh, come to power. They already were part of the military elite and governing class, but they had a sultan, right? You know, the Ayyubid sultan in this case. Um, but as a result of, um, you know, the lack of a sultan, there's also, you know, that might have been, you know, assassinated because of a rebellion of the, 
you know, of the Mamluks, they establish a new system of appointing kind of an emir and a sultan who is actually technically from among the slave soldiery, but they were cultivated as a very separate elite class from the rest of the civilian population, as you're pointing out, and that goes back in a pretty long tradition to the ninth century, eighth and ninth centuries, where you have the start of this. Um, but it's very important and interesting to look at that kind of class dimension inflected through ethnic difference. Sometimes people say the Crusades were not between Muslims and Christians. It was between, you know, Franks and Turks, basically, you know, like to just point out that in some cases and in some ways, often they may have had more in common. You know, they all like horses. They mm -hmm. like to train with, you know, with weapons. They love falconry and falcons and hunting and the culture of the hunt. And they have a similar love and joy of having their exploits be celebrated in song to entertain them, you know. And so in some ways, yes, they are very different and opposed. And this is a military confrontation. But you do see episodes where it's clear that, uh, they have some ability to have rapport over common elements of culture and, and experience that distinguish themselves, distinguish them in many ways greatly from the subject po civilian population that they rule uh, and are presumably fighting on behalf. But um, there is one uh, big kind of exception, I would say, to this, and that is in well, more than one, but more, uh, kind of as a phenomenon, that there are periods of what are called popular crusades or people's crusades or the children's crusades that happen in the early 13th century. Uh, the first crusade, you know, this is before things are really very well organized. And just to the point also about rivalries between on, on either side, I mean, there were separate armies uh, established by different commanders in different territories principally that brought together uh, armies that then went um, uh, you know, to the journey through the Balkans into the Anatolian Peninsula down to the Levant that were all you know, pretty separate, organized and commanded separately. And they had rivalries among themselves. Part of the reason why there are four different principalities and polities in the Latin Crusader Kingdom is because different commanders wanted to control territory on their own, more or less. Um, and there were a lot of like infighting and factional division on that side as well. But when the first crusade was announced, it caught uh, popular imagination. And so you had, you know, individual preachers preaching, uh, you know, the crusade and promising heavenly rewards. And there was clearly a kind of millenarian or messianic kinds of sense of the fulfillment of history was at hand if we conquered Jerusalem in this kind of people's migration, people's pilgrimage to rescue Jerusalem, that then we might have, you know, the second coming or the fulfillment of various prophecies. It was seen as momentous in history and struck a chord in the devotional culture and imagination of people beyond just the noble military class. Um, and so there were periods of popular religious enthusiasm associated with crusade mobilization, but increasingly the popes and the military lords don't want to bring a whole bunch of untrained people that are going to have to be fed and dealt with and who are a problem when it comes to discipline. And so they increasingly tried to professionalize it. But because of the persistent and constant failures of the Crusades, the first was really the only 
big, big success. Subsequent to that, there were reversals. The Second Crusade was called because of the conquest uh, of Edessa by Zangi, as I mentioned. The Third Crusade because of, you know, the destruction of the Latin Crusader army at the Battle of Hattin and recapture of Jerusalem by Salah Then, So that's the Third Crusade. The Fourth Crusade is basically to pick up because the Third Crusade ended with a sort of stalemate and a truce and didn't even attempt a siege of Jerusalem. It goes off the rails, captures Constantinople. There's the Fifth Crusade, which is a really big attempt by the Pope, Innocent III, that, you know, we have to organize this. So, um, you know, he calls together a universal council, Lateran IV, reforms the church. Many of the things that we think of as absolutely typical and necessary for lay people's religiosity in the Catholic tradition were established really at Lateran IV, like universal confession. Everybody should do confession. Uh, the idea that everybody should attend mass at least once a year. You're wondering, well, what were people doing before that? But I mean, this is where you create these obligations and extend the religious life more fully to the laity. There was this idea that we have to reform Christendom religiously, suppress heresy. We'd have the Albigensian, you know, so you have the Albigensian crusade is being wrapped up and it's a crusade council. Um, you know, that is that is called together. It also ends in a complete disaster. It invades Egypt. Um, as I pointed out, even the Third Crusade, it looked like they had designs really on Egypt. They actually, you know, invade uh, Egypt, uh, capture coastal city of Damianta, but it founders when they try and, you know, conquer uh, Cairo. The Sixth Crusade is seen as a bit of a disaster. It restores Jerusalem, but by negotiation, because Frederick II goes and he, you know, catches the Ayyubids in a time of weakness and he negotiates, you know, for uh, Jerusalem to be restored to Christian Christian rule. Uh, but that ends with the, um, you know, in the 1240s uh, with, uh, you know, Turkic tribes, people displaced uh, from the Khwarezm, you know, Shah, when they're conquered by the Mongols, it sets these, you know, Turkic tribal uh, groupings to migrate, uh, you know, uh, westwards, and they come and they, you know, sack Jerusalem. And so then you have San Luis going, you know, with the Seventh Crusade. It's an utter disaster again, because he tries the same thing that they did in the Fifth Crusade and attacks Egypt, and he's captured and has to be ransomed, and it's a total disaster. And the same thing with the Eighth Crusade that goes to Tunis. And so this is a series of major mobilizations under the atmosphere of crisis, of emergency, you know, that imposes this kind of sense that, um, you know, we have to make all kinds of changes and reforms and, um, you know, that involves the spending, uh, you know, of money. How do you put together huge armies? You know, this is a major military mobilizations taking place. And so it has all kinds of consequent effects on medieval European society, economy. How is it that the Italian city-states become so dominant in the Eastern, you know, in the Mediterranean trade? There had been, you know, um, Amalfi. Amalfi was... Um, in southern Italy was a major trading power in the ninth and early 10th centuries uh, and 10th centuries. And it did so through cooperative relations with the, you know, Fatimids in Egypt and connecting to the Byzantine trade. So they were kind of a circuit through which a kind of triangle trade grew up that connected, 
you know, uh, Egypt to uh, Constant, you know, Cairo to Constantinople, as it were. This was displaced by a much more militant kind of hostile uh, form of, um, you know, of maritime uh, organization that is buttressed by the investments in the navies of Genoa and, and Venice because of crusading. And they get these special concessions in Acre in the Latin Crusader Kingdom to set up their own independent entrepots, you know, for the networking uh, trade. And so you would have to say that crusading is really important in the rise of these city-states and their naval dominance in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Same thing, you know, how do you raise these big, you know, armies? You have to do so um, increasingly and provision yourself for a long journey that's going to take months, years, perhaps. This is where tithe and taxation that had not been part of the feudal system gets introduced. The only institution that had been able to impose something like what we would recognize as a regular necessary tax was the church, the tithe to the church. No secular ruler had authority to raise revenue, you know, from, uh, you know, you could raise military arms, you know, and military service in the feudal vassalage system. Um, there were smart, some, you know, there were small markets and you could have um, and, and attempt to monetize things like mills and other things. But we're talking smallish scale for a sovereign who was really primus inter pares. How do you distinguish yourself? Part of it came through the emergency conditions of exploiting the feudal obligation to serve your Lord under the emergency situation that the Holy Land is under threat and the Pope has authorized crusade and the Pope says, yes, you can tithe, you can get a 10%. So there's the famous Saladin tithe that Philip and Henry II and Richard, uh, Richard ends up, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, using this for the third crusade is that they, for the first time, are able to raise a revenue on 10% of, you know, income and movable goods, right? I mean, this is unheard of before that. And so the whole history of taxation, the whole history of, you know, if you think of Charles Tilley's coercion and capital and the formation of states in the early modern period, well, a lot of this has its roots, you could say, in the extraordinary measures that emergency and crisis in crusading uh, imposes upon Latin Christen, Christendom uh, to allow some of these sovereigns to really exploit the resources of their kingdoms in new ways and to build proto-states. I'm not going to go so far and say these are these are states in the modern sense, but we're on the path of greater, in, you know, centralizing of institutions um, uh, developed around collecting of these revenues that help break aspects of the feudal vassalage sort of system and land tenure system, you know, because people need to raise revenues um, for going on crusading. They're willing to mortgage land, lease it, sell it, mortgage against it, to borrow, to finance. And as a result, we've got this development that's taking place that really has been seldom incorporated into our narratives of medieval European history and the transformations that take place in the move from feudalism to capitalism, whatever we want to say about the great transformation. 
I think you can't really think about this stuff without incorporating and integrating the impact of 200 years of war mobilization and its consequences on European society during this period. Wow. That Pascal, that was, that was, that's, that's really fascinating to demonstrate how the correlation between the Crusades sets foundations for nation state developmental institutions in not only European civilization, but Western civilization. That's a very important correlation. This, we're coming kind of towards the end of the program, but if you can, Adnan, show, show us the, the connection between how this ideological friction between Christendom and the Islamic world fills the narrative that comes about in late 20th century, early 20th, first century politics, particularly in the war on terror period, about the quote-unquote class of civilizations that is between us, this, this, the rise of crusader language, the second crusade, if you will, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as it was actually viewed by many people in the Muslim world, as a matter of fact. And also, can you explain, in relation to that, how the memories of the crusades influence the rise of Islamism as a political movement. Oh, that's an important and big topic. Um, I don't know if I can completely do justice to that part of it, but we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll try and connect it a little bit. But I think you're absolutely right in identifying the way in which the global war on terrorism discourse could easily easily recover certain memories, uh, I wouldn't want to say really memories, but um, references to uh, the history of the Crusades and crusading. And we see this very, you know, importantly in the imagery and iconography and culture that has developed in, you know, the extreme far right and far right movements um, over the course of the global war on terrorism sort of period, you could say. Uh, that include, you know, on, on, uh, Anders Breivik, uh, the person who killed, uh, uh, what was it, 70 or 80 people in, in uh, Norway who um, characterized <coughs> what he was doing as a new crusade and a call to found a new order of the Templars, right? So there was very much a kind of crusading theme and imagery to try and uh, mobilize, as it were, a European culture and civilization, which I would say they think of in a frame that is really the secularization or the secularized Christendom, um, you know, um, in uh, response to uh, both immigration, which is a kind of new kind of way of thinking about it, um, um, that maybe goes back to the story we were talking about in Spain of like, well, you have to expel these others from your society because they don't fit and they're a threat and a danger to, you know, Christian society, uh, even if they have been forcibly converted. Uh, and um, the crusading warfare against, you know, the Islamic world as the great rival uh, historically, starting with the crusading era, but then continuing in, you know, the uh, early modern period with the, you know, uh, Holy Roman Empire of the Habsburgs against the, you know, uh, the Ottomans, for example, is something that, you know, continues this sort of theme. Um, so 
the recovery of that is really important and you can see its basis in the thought of someone like Samuel Huntington who's searching for a post-Cold War mode of um, organizing geopolitics and um, he goes back to this idea as presumably established in history and tries to think of uh, the ideological clashes of the Cold War is merely a kind of, you know, civil war of the West. I think he sort of characterizes it. And he tries to identify these cultural, it's basically the move towards looking for a culturalist sort of explanation for contemporary, you know, geopolitical problems and rivalries. And I would say, you know, I don't know what Gene, maybe Gene will have some thoughts on this, is that and a colleague of mine, Ariel Salzman, wrote a really wonderful article about this, um, that uh, in some ways Huntington's um, you know, historical imagination, and when he wants to try and, when he, he turned the article, the famous article in Foreign Affairs, Is There a Clash of Civilizations? Question mark. When he turned it into a book called The Clash of Civilizations, and he made up his mind um, and filled it out with this historical kind of background, the person he turned to was Fernand Braudel, interestingly enough. And if you read the, you know, uh, Fernand Braudel's masterwork um, about the Mediterranean world uh, um, in the age of Philip, uh, Mediterranean, the Mediterranean world in the age of Philip the, the second, um, he has to talk about this question of the Moriscos and why it was, despite an economic and demographic need for their labor on the land in medieval, in late medieval and early modern Spain, why and how did they expel this uh, community? Um, and you couldn't come up with a kind of economic argument for 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 doing this. And he didn't want to say that it was anti-Muslim, you know, bigotry or racism or prejudice. Uh, so he invented this um, kind of uh, kind of category of overlapping civilizations, and that civilizations are this intermediate kind of structure between the long durée, the long time period of, you know, um, ecological, you know, factors and so on, and the, you know, quick, you know, time of politics. It is this kind of underlying perduring like dunes of sand, like, okay, this grains of sand will blow, but the dune kind of pretty much takes a really long time for it to change. And that's what these civilizations are like. And you have places like the Balkans, like the Western, in the Western Mediterranean, Iberian Peninsula that are overlapping civilizations. And there's no real way to resolve these except through a kind of violent kind of, you know, you know, differentiation that has to take place. And Huntington sees upon this um, as the basis historically for his kind of model and his theory for recovering what he thinks is like this older form of, of um, you know, civilizational competition um, that will guide, the, you know, the future. And I think interestingly enough, um, what it points to is the long history of anti-Muslim, what the work politically that anti-Muslim kind of discourse does and has done for a long time in creating a sense of Christian or later secularized European unity, 
the ignoring of the fact that there are these mixed origins, that there were Muslims already in Europe in various ways who made all those contributions that we talked about in a period of interplay and so on. And that instead you get this vision of a fortress Europe, Europe as a secularized version of Latin Christendom, um, you know, that uh, is in kind of constant rivalry um, with uh, the dangerous uh, Muslim, Muslim world that was a very useful discourse to resurrect or invent on the basis of this imagined previous history uh, during the era of the global war on terrorism, where the Muslim was the figure that was most dangerous to secular, liberal, democratic order of Europe, right? So that they couldn't be tolerated within Europe. Um, and so he's really given, I think, the, and and he of course does talk about the Crusades as, uh, you know, briefly, but it's sort of just part of the backdrop and the background imagination for what I think of is the kind of key, one of the key texts that really helps you explain the direction of modern um, right wing and fascist, if you want to call it that, but, you know, right-wing nationalist discourses that are, you know, really em emerging in much clearer fashion now with the emergence in, say, the United States of people who are willing to call themselves Christian nationalists. And I think, I think just on a point of that, you know, it's not an accident that the focus is civilization and culture. Uh, given the bad reputation of race science and racial essentialism after the first uh, second world war there has been the shift to a kind of discussion of culture but culture which is functionally deterministic and indifferent is functionally not very different from racial determination exactly if, so, if w.e.b du bois was here today he wouldn't say the problem of the late 20th and 21st century is the problem of the color line, he would say it is the problem of the culture line. Culture line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that, with that point. And you can see that if you look at the project of Huntington, what's the book he writes after the Clash of Civilizations? I think you have to think of these two as connected in just the same way that I would think of talking about the Crusades and kind of the sort of anti-Muslim kind of uh, element and propaganda of like, we have to defeat this terrible infidel with the interior rise of the persecuting society. I think the synthesis of these things is actually the rise of the crusading society is you see exactly the same pattern. Geopolitics is the clash of civilizations. And then the other book is who we are. Mm -hmm. The book that is about how we are an Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, our institutions, our politics is all configured on the fundamental basis of that shared heritage and common presumptions and that the Enlightenment can't be universalized. It's ours and only ours. And if you have too much Catholic migration, if you have too many black people from West Africa with their different religious ideas and cultural ideas coming in and other kinds of immigration, then you lose America as a potential, as, as a functioning democracy. It's the demography argument that he makes that we hear from Israel about the demographic bomb. He's arguing the same thing essentially, is that we have to be careful that we don't have a demographic bomb that erodes the possibility within America of having our 
you know, democracy that's only possible if it's just us, right? Or at least that people can be like us. And so you have the domestic kind of theater and consequences of a clash of civilization sort of imagination for international affairs and geopolitics that go together. Fascinating. Well, we have gone over an hour, Adnan. Uh, I would love for you to come back to have a conversation with us on the development of uh, Islamism in uh, and uh, we should do a show on the Muslim Brotherhood. I think that would be actually interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about in the modern that we haven't. Um, uh, we've been back in the past, in the medieval past. <laughs> yes. But well, I would love uh, to come and continue the discussion. So uh, let's uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Gene Bajlan, for orchestrating this pre-record, MT for participating. Mm -hmm. Do you want to wrap it up, Gene? Yeah, well, um, I'd like to remind everyone to like and subscribe. Check out Adnan's podcast, Guerrilla History. And as we say on This Is Revolution, we are out.